And we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8 today. That text is printed in your bulletin, or if you have a Bible and want to turn there, Ecclesiastes 8. And we're going to be talking about karma today uh, and the problem of suffering amongst the righteous. Why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. Uh, When I think about that, I think about poor Salieri, who is forever made famous in the movie Amadeus as the jealous rival to Mozart, the slightly lesser talented one who wanted to write beautiful music for the glory of God and was well-intentioned, but instead had to live in the presence of Mozart, the impudent, uh, irreverent, brilliant composer. And Salieri thought it was terribly unfair. I I don't think this is actually true in his life, but the movie is great. So preachers don't mind facts getting in the way of a good story. uh, But his notion is, why would God give Mozart the talent when I have the attitude of wanting to please you? Why does that happen? And you you can think about many other examples of it in your life. Think about criminal justice and situations where innocent people are convicted and guilty people go free, which is relatively common, we know. But it's vexing to us when people get away with things or when people are unfairly charged with things. Or when you see a childhood bully grow up to thrive and have what seems like a really great life. You know, it seems like it shouldn't be that way. All the things mom said to, to uh, console us turned out not to be true. You know, that that person is just miserable and you know their life won't go really well, but a lot of times the bully's lives go great. And, uh, and it's vexing. Right? We have an innate sense of justice in the world. We don't have to teach our kids the notion of what fairness is. They know. And they know the world ought to be fair, and it ought to be just. But um, our experience doesn't really bear out that the world is just. Um, Bono had a Christmas song that he wrote uh, in which he used the phrase, uh, hope and history don't rhyme. Mm -hmm. And that's the essence of the problem of the prosperity of the wicked, to use the biblical terminology, or the problem of uh, broken karma, to use maybe more of a street-level term for it. You know, uh, the idea that the world is round, and what comes around goes around, and uh, you can expect that the scales will balance out over time, but that's not really what happens. If you're more poetic, you might like what Martin Luther King Jr. said, the, uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice doesn't seem to bend towards justice, right? Karma doesn't seem to work as advertised. Our preacher, uh, Solomon, Kohelet, uh, whatever we're supposed to call him, we're eight chapters in and I can't decide, but uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes is vexed by this problem. And that's what he talks about in the passage we're going to look at. He's vexed by the prosperity of the wicked or the failure of karma and does what he usually does, which is to uh, expose the false trusts and hopes and the naivete of some of our natural hopes that we have for the world so that we'll look for a different hope, to provoke and goad us to look for something uh, more substantial and more satisfying. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we're here because um, we want to know you and um, this can't happen just through 
our own rituals, our own intellectual exercise. We need you to come and meet with us and open our hearts and minds to you. So please do that for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. And this also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God's given him under the sun. And when I apply my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. And however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. I mentioned before during Ecclesiastes that one complaint people lodge against Christianity is that it's it's easy answers for people who don't like to think. And I just <laughs> wish that were true. <laughs> the uh, I'm not that keen on thinking. But Ecclesiastes especially does not provide such easy answers. It's not like a mystery story either where you read through and you're confused the whole time and at the end you go, oh, now I see. This is, this is how everything is to be explained. Uh, that's not how Ecclesiastes ends. It's uh, not the book where all is revealed at the end, but it's the book where we learn to trust God with our questions and our vexation. And so that's what we're trying to do again today. Do you know Earl Hickey? From uh, My Name is Earl, it's a street-level philosopher, but Earl Hickey was a petty thief who basically lived his life uh, selfishly and foolishly. And uh, One day he won a $100,000 lottery ticket, but as he was uh, walking home all excited with it, he got hit by a car and lost his lottery ticket, put in the hospital. And while he was sort of under a morphine haze in the hospital, he sees on uh, Carson Daly's show, I think it was, something about karma. Someone's talking about karma, and it's like the epiphany for him. And you know, he's like, ah, this is what it is. I've, I've harmed all these people and done all these bad things, and that's why bad things are happening to me. And so he decides he's going to turn his life around by making a list of everybody he's harmed and everything he's done wrong and go back and try to make amends for them to try to rebalance the scales of karma and cause things to go well for him in his life. And after he does the first thing to amend for what he'd done in the past, he finds his lottery ticket again. So that tells you it works, right? <laughs> Karma is going to work for him. This doesn't have all the connotations of Hinduism or Buddhism and their philosophy behind it with karma. This is more blue-collar karma. But it's, it's the kind of karma we think and talk about, even if we don't use that term, when we say things like the world is round. We say, you know, what comes around goes around, and 
ultimately, and we tell our kids things like this, you know, with sincerity, like, oh, what world's around, what comes around goes around, things are going to work out, um, the world's supposed to be fair, you know, uh, the George Baileys of the world wind up prospering and doing well, and the Mr. Potters of the world wind up suffering and doing bad. And we want that to be the case. We're sure deep down it ought to be the case. Um, but our experience tells us that it's not really true. It's just not really true to our experience. It is sometimes just enough to kind of keep the plate spinning in our minds to think that it might really be real. Um, but it's not. And it's very vexing that it's not. Because the world's supposed to be fair, but it isn't fair. And so when the preacher looked at this, he's like, I know the way it's supposed to be. He kind of gives you these axioms in verse 12 and 13. He says, look, this is the way it's supposed to be. A sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, and it will not be well with the wicked. And what he's saying is, dang it, I know this, right? I know this is true. And yet, man, my life, look at my life. Look what I see around me. It doesn't match up. It doesn't rhyme with what I know is supposed to be true. And apparently he's just come from the funeral of a wicked person who had apparently a good funeral, who was eulogized at his funeral. And people talked about you know, what a great person he was in the city. Even talked about what a great religious person he was. Like he used to go in out of church and everybody would congratulate him. Solomon, though, the writer, knows the guy's wicked. And yet, uh, he lives on this cloud. Everybody thinks he's great. And he has a great funeral. And it's galling to call to the preacher. Right? It's, like, it's not supposed to be that way. Right? And he says, you've got this delay of justice. Even if, even if what I'm saying is true, and I know that God really does see and really will set the scales right one day, even if, I, even if that's true, it takes so long that... Uh, it emboldens other people to be wicked when they see the wicked getting away with it. Verse 11. Sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, so the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Emboldens other people. Stalin died in his bed or surrounded by his family. It was creepy, they said, but nonetheless, he died in his bed surrounded by his family. How does that happen? How does that fare? How does that work? If the arc of history bends towards justice, it bends really, really slowly. That's what we say. And actually, I don't want to overthink this, but an arc kind of starts out going away from where it ends up, too. And I feel like maybe we're in the early part of the arc or something because uh, what we don't see most of the time is the arc of history bending towards justice. Uh, seems to bend the other way. And that's what he says in verse 14. There's vanity that takes place. Righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And ain't it the truth? But religious people love karma. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, in the quote at the beginning of the bulletin. Bono said, "I'm going to quote Bono again after this too. So just you know, judge me if you want." <laughs> but he talked about how all the religions of the world are based on karma. Yeah, the whole idea that. If I'm good, if I can keep my list short, like Earl Hickey, if I can keep my list short through my morality and my religious observance, then God will be in my debt. And He'll have to cause things to go well for me. Right? That's kind of like what people assume the premise of any religion is. 
if you're good, you can get God in your debt and make Him do things for you that He's reluctant to do otherwise. And uh, we don't usually say it that way, but that's kind of what we mean. I'll get God in my debt. I love karma. And you can see it all through the Bible. People dead believe in karma. I mean, not the whole reincarnation, cycles, wheels, absorption of the all-soul stuff, but just the world is round stuff. Um, do you remember Job's friends? Read the book of Job. He had these friends who were pretty impressive in some ways because his life had just completely collapsed, devastatingly. And his friends came and they sat quietly for like seven days and didn't say anything. They just sat there and cried with him, which is way better than any of us would do. But when they did talk, you remember what they said? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> right? So what do you do? Like that's their only category for what why Job's life had gone to pieces. What would you do? You must have done something. Jesus' disciples, you know, who probably all wish they'd never said anything, because they always look silly in the in the Bible. Uh, when they get quoted. But they were walking with Jesus one day and they come across a man who was born blind. And they asked Jesus about it. Remember what they asked him? So, was it this man's sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be blind? Which is a karma question, right? Whose fault is it that he's blind? And Jesus said basically, Oy vey. You know, you don't know what you're talking about, right? You don't know what you're talking about. That's it's this isn't a karma game. And then the gospel passage we read earlier, uh, people came to Jesus and said, Did you hear about this people who got killed at church? That Pilate killed these believers, he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus read through the subtext of their question. He said, Are you thinking that happened to them because they were bad? worse than you or worse than other people there? Because that's not it. This isn't a karma situation. Uh, they didn't like fail to keep up their end of things with God so that God uh, is now causing their lives to go terribly. Same thing with the tower that followed the people in Siloam. He said, do you think that was a karma situation? Because it's not. It's not karma. But it seems like Karma's true, right? It feels like that's the way the universe should work and probably does work. And we all, in our little hearts, no matter how good our theology is and how high we would score on the doctrine test, we all have a big, soft place in our hearts for karma, right? And so, if something goes really well for us and people say, wow, you did a great job and that's why things have gone well for you, we say, go on. <laughs> Your children are great. You must have been wonderful parents. Oh, now, I wouldn't really say that we're great parents. Um, but, you know, one thing that we have learned in our experience that I'd like to share unsolicitedly with you is, you know, you know if, if something goes well in your life, you turn into Julie Andrews and the sound of music. You know, Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. But somewhere in my youth or childhood, <laughs> I must have done something. I must have done something good. But if you fail, that little karma spot in your heart will come and get you and say, see? Fraud? Failure? Lousy Christian? 
Of course this goes bad for you. You disgust God. He's constantly disappointed with you. He must hate you. You've never kept up your end of the deal. Of course this is going wrong for you. Or you'll say, this is not fair because I have kept up my end of the deal and God owes me. And these are, these are the sentiments of a heart of, full of karma right? that believes that God deals with us and makes deals with us. I am pretty sure that if I were a better man, that I would have greater usefulness to God in His kingdom. I would have more influence. I would have more people know my name. I'm pretty sure. Now, I don't believe that on paper in any of my doctrine, but I believe it in my little heart. I at least believe if I were a better man, I wouldn't have gotten COVID. Right? I mean, sure. The... Uh, but it's not true. Right? This isn't true. And when Kohelet, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, points these things out, he's pointing us, when he says, under the sun, you believe in karma and it doesn't work, you need a different hope. I'm pointing you to a hope that's beyond the sun. Something you can't see, uh, but that is the true force in the world, and what's really going on in the world, that you need to believe. He said, your longings for justice, for the world to be set right side up. Those are good longings, but your hope that karma's going to do that are false hopes. Karma's always going to let you down. It won't happen the way you expect it to. And instead of karma, the Bible points us to the grace of Jesus Christ as our hope for seeing justice done in the world and for blessing to happen in our lives. It points us to the grace, the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ rather than to karma and some deal that we can make and keep with God. So, um, when they came to Jesus and, and told him about the people who got killed in the church and the tower that fell, you know, what Jesus said to them was, do you think they were worse sinners? Why did he ask them that? Well, because they thought they were worse sinners, right? But the real thought was that bad people are going to face justice one day, and that's a problem for them. And Jesus was sort of turning it around to say, yeah, bad people are going to face justice one day, and that's a problem for them and you. Right? Because pure justice, no matter how much our hearts cry out for fairness and justice in the world, pure justice is a problem for us because uh, we wind up indicted by pure justice rather than congratulated by pure justice. Uh, we are not the goodies uh, hoping that the baddies will one day get theirs. We're all baddies, biblically speaking. And that's what Jesus was trying to press on his disciples. They're not, you're not better than, unless you repent, this, this will happen to you too. They're not worse than you. They're just like you. And until you come to understand that, you're going to keep your hope of karma alive because you're going to think you're a good person uh, that generally, at least your good deeds outweigh your bad, so generally God has to be on your side. You force his hand. And Jesus is saying, that's not the case at all. If you saw the scales from God's perspective, you would realize uh, your good deeds do not outweigh your bad deeds by any stretch. And perfect justice is a problem for you. Um, when the disciples saw the blind man, they didn't say it out loud, but what they were thinking inside is, hey, the reason I'm not blind is what? Because I didn't send him, my parents didn't send him. Right. 
and I'm not blind. I don't know why he's blind. I don't know what he did. But I'm okay because I'm being rewarded for my goodness. And that's a fallacy. That's a fallacy. The gospel of Jesus undermines that because we're taught to hope in the grace of Jesus Christ. Our hopes for justice being established are that Jesus uh, endured the justice of God on our behalf when he went to the cross and that Jesus is going to establish justice for the world universally at his return. Um, Not that us goodies will be rewarded in the end and those baddies will be punished. Uh, That's not our hope at all. Our hope is in something completely undeserved, whereas karma describes a world where you get completely what you do deserve. And you don't want what you do deserve. And I don't either. So, under grace, instead of karma, when you succeed, you don't inflate yourself with self-congratulations. You say, I have received a gift. Like the Apostle Paul said, what do you have that you have not received. And so Christians in their success are thankful for gift, not self-congratulatory for accomplishment. And when you fail, you don't interpret it as the abandonment or disfavor of God. We're told that the worst things that happen to us as Christian believers are fatherly discipline at their root. Fatherly discipline Not because he hates us, but because he loves us. See how different that is as a response to failure than to be angry at God because he let down his side of the bargain or self-loathing because you know you didn't keep up your end of the bargain. But rather to say, my father thinks I need this and I don't want it at all, but he's doing this because he loves me. It's an amazing difference in a way to think about God, to think in terms of grace instead of in terms of karma. A couple of implications. Uh, One is that your longings for justice are good. You're created in the image of God who is just. And you reflect Him when you desire justice in the world. These are good longings that are built into us uh, for which we should be thankful. And those longings will be satisfied eventually. They will be satisfied eventually. His axiom in verse 13, 12 and 13... I know it will be well with those who fear God. I know it will not be well with the wicked. It's true. Justice will be done. Jesus will do justice in the world. But it's delayed. And it is inscrutable. You can't figure it out. And the more you try, the more it will vex you. That's what he says at the end of this in 16 and 17. I applied my heart to know wisdom. Figure out what God's doing. But I saw the work which God, the, all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that's done under the sun. However much a man may toil in seeking, he won't find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. You're not going to get the key to the map of life and say, now I get what God's doing all the time and I understand this and I know these are the reasons that God let this terrible thing happen in my life and here's the clear picture that I have into the wisdom and mind of God. You don't have that. You're not going to get that. His wisdom is inscrutable. We don't get to understand everything we want to understand. Our questions of why you know, are not usually answered with answers about that start with because right, in the Christian life. Um, it's more like a parent comforting a child when the child is screaming, why, why, why? And the parent says, 
they're there, basically, right? You know, they're there because you're not going to know. A couple things we're told about some of our struggle and suffering, about why we see the prosperity of the wicked and the failure of karma in the world. Um, we're assured that God's patience is not indifferent. Like his waiting to establish justice doesn't mean that he's indifferent about justice. Uh, and we're promised this. And we believe it because Jesus Christ himself has entered into our suffering and entered into a world of injustice and suffered as unjustly as anyone ever could. The most righteous person on earth suffered as the most wicked person on earth. He knows from the inside what it feels like to live this way. He's not content to leave it this way. Um, he will establish justice. He's not indifferent. And actually, as much of an explanation as we're given for God's delay in establishing justice in the world is that it gives us time to repent. It gives us time uh, to be honest before God and to seek His mercy um, rather than just complaining about how He's let us out all the time or trying to scratch off the list of everything uh, so we can balance the scales in our lives. He's given us time to repent. And even though we don't know everything He's doing, that's one of the things we know He's doing. And so that's very kind and an opportunity for us I hope you'll listen to and take seriously. The second um, implication of this is that you can still have joy in your life. Even in a world that's vexing. Um, when Solomon says that, you know, he's kind of he's like grasping for things that he knows are true. Uh, but in verse 15 when he says, I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. To go, go with him in his toil through all the days of his life which God's given him under the sun. Sometimes when Solomon is in despair, he says, Ah, eat, drink, be merry, you're going to die. You know, and other times he says, hey, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, God's given us a good world to enjoy. Let's enjoy it uh, as best we can in the situation we're in. And that's kind of what he's, he's pointing to here. Uh, he said, you don't, have to, you don't have to give yourself over to cynicism when you see the prosperity of the wicked in the world. When you see justice is never fully done, when the cause you fight for and care about and read about it long to see change in doesn't change very much, very fast, you don't have to become a cynic. Because you know Jesus has promised that the arc of history will bend towards justice even very slowly. The arc does bend. And you also don't have to be naive to be happy in the world. And I think this is what tempts cynics a lot, as you think. Um, you have to be a doofus to be happy. You have to ignore what's vexing and painful in the world. And what Solomon is pointing us to is a life of faith, where he says, look, you're waiting for something you haven't seen yet. You're waiting for something uh, that you don't have a lot of evidence of yet beyond the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but it's real. And you can take the joy where you get it now. And you don't have to wait till the world's perfect before you can ever lighten up for a minute. Uh, because you've been called to live in a world that isn't fixed yet. The fix is in, but it's not completed. And we're meant to be able to enjoy God's world and live with some flourishing and some actual happiness because it's actually okay to be happy uh, without being a doofus that ignores the pain in the world. And that's a path of wisdom. It's not an easy uh, fill-in-the-blank path but it's a beautiful path. 
the one we're called to fall to uh, walk on. So our hope is in the grace of Jesus, the one who we know sees, who hears the cries of the oppressed, who cares, who has entered into suffering from the inside. And we know he has made his promise that he will set the world back to rights, that he will establish justice in the world. And this is our hope. So because of that, I urge you to abandon all of your karmic dreams, to tear up your lists of things you think you're going to do to balance the scales in life, to put God into your debt, because you're not. What you're invited to by the grace of Jesus is to rest in the love of a Savior who will never abandon you.